Well, good morning once again. Glad you're here with us. We are continuing our series called We're Together Today. And uh, my name is John. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I am the pastor here. And this, this series is all about relationships, particularly the very closest relationships that we have in our life. I read about a study this weekend that was really interesting. It was started at Harvard University in 1937. 1937. They started a longitudinal study. That means they they did a study over a long, long period of time, and they tracked uh, 268 students from from Harvard University that they felt like were really happy and well-adjusted in school, and they tracked them over the course of their life, and they tracked all these factors. They tracked... um, physical factors like how healthy they were, what kind of exercise they got, uh, you know, what their cholesterol was, you know, major injuries and accidents, things like that. They, they tracked relational things like when they were dating or got married or had kids, those sorts of things. They, they tracked emotional stuff like traumatic events that happened, how they, uh, defense mechanisms that they had, all this. They tracked all of those factors over the course of the study lasted for 72 years. They tracked them basically their entire life, from 1937 for 72 years. And the, um, the, the guy who ran the study for, the Har- the, for Harvard University for the last 42 years of that, his name was George Viant. And um, in 2008, the study was, uh, had either finished or was coming to a close. And he was asked, after, after going over all of that data, all of those years, all of those questions, all of those answers, he was asked, what was the biggest thing that he learned from that study? And you would expect, I don't know, maybe you, I don't know if you would expect this, I would, from a Harvard psychiatrist, <laughs> that the answer would be pretty intense or pretty sophisticated in general, wouldn't you think? But it wasn't. After the 72-year study, they asked him what was the biggest thing that he saw, and he said this, the only thing that really matters in your life is your relationships. That that was the culmination of the entire study. And I was like, bro, I could have told you that. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't need 72 years to figure that out. Like you, your, your life goes up and down based on the quality of the relationships that you have. And if that's true, then the closest relationship that you have in your life, that one person, the closest relationship that you have will be the biggest determining factor in your happiness and fulfillment in your life, Right? So what I want to do today is I want to talk about marriage for a little while and how that can be the source of your greatest happiness in your life. Last week, we talked about how to search for the one. Let's say you found them, okay, or the two, as we talked about last week. So uh, we're going to talk about marriage. And the thing is that marriage, um, the thing that is supposed to bring us the most joy can often bring us the most pain, right? Right? It's, it's like uncomfortable underwear. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's the closest thing to your body. It's supposed, supposed to comfort and protect you. But if it's uncomfortable, everything's uncomfortable, right? You can be wearing, you can be wearing a track suit and you would be uncomfortable if you had uncomfortable underwear. And sometimes marriage is like underwear. You know, it's supposed to comfort and protect you. It's supposed to be the safe place. But when it's bad, man, it makes everything bad. And so I want to talk about today how it can be a little bit better. I don't know if you ever noticed, but sometimes married couples can't get along with each other. 
You ever seen that? You ever, you've heard of this? It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenon that's sweeping the nation. Sometimes married couples don't get along, and you think, well, why is that? Didn't you, didn't you stand together in front of witnesses, and didn't you say, you know, in sickness and in health, until death do us part, and all that stuff? And then you're like, well, what happened to that? You know, where, where did that go? Like, perhaps we should add the word maybe to our vows, just in case, <laughs> until death do us part, Maybe. You know, if everything goes well, why, why, why can't married couples seem to get along? How, how do allies become adversaries? How do teammates become opponents? How do uh, partners become enemies? I mean, is it the money? Is that the problem? Is money the problem? Having too much or not having enough? Or is the job the problem? The hours that we work or don't work is... Are the kids the problem, you know, that they're crazy or whatever? Is it, is it, is the sex the problem? Is that causing an issue? Is it, is it, what is it? Is, that, is it the housework? We just can't figure out who's going to do what around here? Is that the problem? Is that what causes this? Well, I'd say no. I think those are all symptoms of a deeper problem. And, and the, the deep problem is actually very simple and it's nothing too, uh, nothing too new either. So to see what the problem is and why it is that most, uh, most maybe most couples can't seem to get along, uh, we're going to go way, way, way back to the beginning. So if you have your Bible, open up to the book of Genesis. And I think what you're going to see here is we go, to, go right to the beginning. Go to chapter, well, not the beginning. Go to chapter 2. Um, but Genesis chapter 2. And uh, even if you're here and you're not uh, a Christian, I just want you to know that I think what you're going to see as we're reading is that what we read makes a whole lot of sense. And what we talk about, the principle we, today, uh, we talk about today is going to be helpful to you no matter what. So listen, listen very carefully. Everyone can apply this. Um, but it goes to a deeper level when we bring God into the picture. So we're going to go to the very beginning, or roughly there, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, we see God creating the physical world. In Genesis chapter 2, we see God creating the relational world. That's kind of the, one of the main differences between the two chapters. And so, in fact, if you read through the two, you'll notice that the timeline of creation in Genesis chapter 1 is a little different than the timeline of creation in Genesis 2, and that's because they serve different purposes, okay? So, uh, but we're going to read in Genesis chapter 2, and uh, start with verse 5, okay? When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Hear that, hear that terminology. There's no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man. We know him as Adam, right? God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He, life, a soul, right? And the man became a living creature. So God creates him. And then, and then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in, in the east, and there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God, there's, there's nothing, and he creates man out of the ground. He takes dust and he balls it together and he breathes life. He breathes a soul into this and it becomes Adam. It becomes a man. And then God creates the garden. The question everybody always asks is why did God create man? Why did God create Adam? And what you'll typically hear the answer to that is, is that God created human beings. God created men to have a relationship with them. And that's what God wants. 
And while it's true that God created man and wants a relationship with us, that's not why he created us. That's not the why. That's a what. And the why is really, really important here, and we often miss it. So why, if you read through this passage and pay attention to what he, what's happening, why did God create Adam? It wasn't because God needed a relationship with Adam. God wasn't lonely before he created Adam. God, God experiences perfect community within himself. He's a trinity. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has perfect community. He needs no one else in that relationship. And if he really wanted someone else, he had angels when he created all of this. No, that's not why he creates Adam. Why does he create Adam? He created Adam to work. He created him to work the garden. He created Adam to be a farmer. He created Adam to take this creation, this physical, Adam is a physical being in the physical creation that he's made, to take it and to tend it and to to manage it, to be his steward, to be God's representative on earth. God creates Adam in his image so that he can be his representative on earth. That's why God created Maybe that explains to us a bit of why guys in particular have this drive to work. It's almost like we were created for that, you know? So that's why God creates Adam. Now, God, now Adam needs a relationship with God in order to fulfill his purpose, right? He's not going to fulfill his purpose the way he's supposed to without that relationship with God, but he's created for the purpose of working, of accomplishing something, of gaining ground, of building something, of cultivating something, of developing something, of seeing produce and product from his life. So that's deeply ingrained inside of all of us. That's why Adam was created. So if we get to the end of our life and uh, we have a really great relationship with God, but we haven't yet found our purpose on earth, what he wants us to do, we will have at very least missed the purpose that he gave us on earth. All right, now I know you probably wonder, what does that have to do with marriage? <laughs> well, we'll see. Let's keep reading. Um, now we're going from verse 9 to verse 15. Um, we're not, now verses, you know, 10 through 14 are important. It's just geography, and it doesn't help us for what we're doing today. So um, let's go to verse 15. So it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, what? To work, right? To work it and to keep it. That's why he put him in there. God created the garden for Adam and he created Adam for the garden, okay? And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he said, these two trees that were planted, you can eat any other tree you want. You can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he gives them purpose. He gives Adam purpose and he gives Adam a parameter And now he's going to give him a partner. All right, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. So God God looked down at Adam and he knew that he had perfect communion within himself. And he knew that the angels had other angels. And he looked at Adam and Adam was by himself. And so God wanted to remedy that. He said, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. That seems logical. All right, then uh, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. A dog may be man's best friend, but he's still not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he, took, while he slept, took one of his ribs 
and closed it up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, and I love this, this is so beautiful and so poetic. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So, so why was woman, we know her as Eve, right? Why was Eve created? Why was woman created? Well, I mean, the problem was Adam was alone, sure, but what was her purpose? Her purpose was to be a helper for him, a partner for him. And actually, in the, um, the translation we're reading from, the English Standard Version, I'm not a huge fan of where it says a helper fit for him because the connotation of that doesn't quite get it for me because uh, it sounds like she exists just to serve him, like that's her sole purpose in life, and that's not it. The, the, um, the connotation of the word that's actually used here in the original language is to, be, to stand in front of or to be near or to be next to. And so... Uh, what it really means, I, I feel like if we were going to just translate it into the current, you know, the way we talk, we would say God formed for him a, 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 a partner by his side, a partner by his side. She was not uh, taken out of his head to control him, and she was not taken out of his feet to be stepped on by him. She was taken out of his side to be a helper and partner with him. So together, as a unit, they now have a purpose. They have a purpose and we see that in the next verse. You're wondering, okay, when do we get into marriage? Here's where we get to marriage. All right. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What God created for them was a perfect personal partnership. He created a perfect partnership for them, a purposeful partnership. They had a job they were supposed to do together. They had a job they were supposed to do. And that was to manage creation. It's what they were created for. And that's what God intends for marriage to be, partners working together, to be, to be friends, to be companions, to, be, to, to help each other, to serve each other, to move forward together. It's to accomplish something together. And common purpose in any relationship that you have, common purpose is as essential to a healthy relationship as oxygen is to fire. If you don't have a purpose together, if you're not accomplishing something together, you will waste away. And that's what happens to, to marriages. How do, we, how do we lose our way? Well, how did they lose their way? Let's, let's keep reading. Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 3 now, if you want to turn to chapter 3. Verse 6 uh, through 12. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So what happened was um, the, the enemy, Satan, the serpent, came to her and she, he said, you know, God told you not to eat from that tree, right? And she said, yeah, yeah, that's what he said. He said, are you sure that's what he said? And she was like, yeah, that's what he said. And um, he said, no, no, that's not what God's doing. God's, he said, God's just trying to hold you back, trying to hold you down. He knows if you eat from that tree, you're going to become like him. And he doesn't want that. He wants to control you. God is being selfish. That's, that's basically what the enemy said to her. And so she went, yeah, you know, you're, 
yeah, you, maybe you're right. And she saw it, and it looked good, and it looked tasty, and she thought, man, I'm gonna, we can become like God. And so she takes it, and she eats it. And the irony of it is that she makes a selfish decision because she thinks that God is making a selfish decision. <laughs> and it's the, other, it's the other way around. And so she eats, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? You've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. And the man said, uh, there's the woman. Well, me. Well, me, it was her fault. She tricked me. She batted her eyes at me. You should have seen it. It's very compelling. She, <laughs> she, gave me, she gave me that look, you know? Like, and, and so what does he do? Something very fundamental happens in this moment. Not only do they sin and all of a sudden they're, they're not unashamed with each other anymore. Not only did they suddenly do have the knowledge of good and evil, God was protecting them when they thought he was restricting them. And, but, but they... Now, God comes to them and confronts them. Instead of owning up for his sin, what is, instead of being a team, instead of being partners, what happens? He turns on her, right? They shift immediately from being teammates to being opponents. He points the finger and he says, it's her fault. It's, she did it. Well, guess what? They're not partners anymore, are they? Now they're enemies, now, now they're at each other. Now they're competing with one another rather than playing for the same team. And then what does she do? She goes, it was a serpent. He did it. It's his fault. They just, okay, they pass the buck. They pass the blame. This is what happens. This is so fundamental for us to understand. And this is the dividing line that happens in marriages. And this will, in most cases, determine whether your marriage lasts a lifetime or whether it falls short of that. It's whether you're willing to be a team or whether you look at it as opponents. So God created spouses to be teammates, but sin turns them into opponents. That's what I want you to hear. And, and in those of you that are married, I want you to think very um, critically about your own relationship and ask, which are we? <laughs> which are we? Um, Jess and I talk about this all the time. My, my wife and I, we talk about this all the time, that we're supposed to be a team. In fact, if you, well, if you follow social media, you know that anytime we post something from our family, the hashtag is always Team J. Allen, because we're all, all our names start with J. I know. Um, they all start with J, and so it's Team J. Allen. And we, we think of ourselves that way. We talk about ourselves that way. When we're, when we're dealing with conflict between our kids, we talk about it. We say, you guys are on the same team. You're not against each other. You're for each other. You're helping each other. We're moving forward together. It is a team mentality. All right? Uh, it comes out even in the way that we talk. And I've done marriage counseling through the years. And, and anytime some, a couple sits down in front of me, you can hear which it is almost immediately just in the verbiage that they choose. So if a couple sits down and they're using um, second person pronouns like you, okay, you do this, you do that, I, they're, they're using these kinds of words, individual words, then it's very likely we've got an opponent situation that's happening in that relationship. But when the couple sits down and they use um, 
first-person plural pronouns like we and our, well, you've got, you know that there's probably a teamwork environment happening. And the truth is that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> At least they don't sit down in front of me. Because when a couple has a team mentality, they very rarely need to sit down for too much counseling. All right? It's like, um, it's like magnets. Okay? It's like magnets. And I have a couple of those right here. And I didn't think this through, how I was going to do this and hold a microphone at the same time. But um, so actually, we'll do this. All right. That way I can do this demonstration. All right. It's like magnets. That works. Okay. So... You know, magnets have poles, right? My son was explaining this to me the other day. Uh, he's nine. So um, magnets, magnets. what God intended was he intended that you would have one partner and another partner, and that the purpose that he created us for and the relationship that we have in our relationship with him, that there would be this internal magnetic force that happens in a relationship that consistently draws us together. It's that, it's that purpose thing. And so what God created was for these two things to pull together right? Just this force. And what happens is there's all these other forces outside of it, like my hands holding it up in the air and, and pulling them backwards and forwards, like societal expectations and family expectations and your own personal expectations or, or religious expectations or whatever. And um, what happens is that when, the, when these are turned the right way, they attract each other and they become very difficult to pull apart. These other outside forces have a very difficult time acting on that marriage because their relationship with God and the purpose he created them for is drawing them together. Makes it really hard. But what, what happens very, very often in marriage is that one or both partners get turned around. And when that happens, you have two people who have different purpose or different values in life, different trajectories, and they're trying to stay together in a relationship, but they're pushing each other apart. Okay. And I don't know, you can't see that, but these are pushing each other apart, right? And all these outside factors now try to hold this couple together. So uh, again, societal expectations or what will my family think? Or, or we have kids together or, or uh, there's financial considerations or whatever it is. And those things are, are holding these things close, but not all the way together. And they're just constantly pushing on each other. And with enough pressure from the outside, I can take these two things I've been working out. I can actually push these together and get them, get them to touch each other, okay? But what happens when those outside pressures are no longer there? What happens when you've been staying together for the kids, but the kids just graduated high school and they moved out of the house? What happens when finances blow up in your face? What happens when you don't care what anybody thinks anymore? What happens when those pressures that have been forcing you together aren't there anymore? They push apart, right? And that's what happens in a lot of relationships. That's what happens in a lot of marriages. That's why you see so many people in their relationships after the kids move out of the house. That's a big one. Like our purpose has been to raise the kids, to raise the kids, to raise the kids, to raise the kids, stay together for kids. And then as soon as they're gone, the relationship's like, what do we have left? So how do you fix this? How do you, how do you get this right when, when, those, when they're pushing against each other? What you need is you need at least one of the partners to start to turn start to turn around. And what happens when they just start to turn a little bit and they start to, to be humble in the relationship, they start to talk to their, their spouse about their purpose and, and start to admit their own fault in the relationship and they start to turn and that force takes over and it pulls together. But it takes somebody turning around. It takes someone in the relationship. Here's what I usually see. Um, 
most most situations I've seen where a couple are at each other, they're on the brink of divorce, that there's one partner who feels offended and one partner who's less interested in keeping the relationship going. And so the offended partner just says, you, 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 you do all these things. You work too much. You spend money that you're not supposed to. You do this, you do this, you do this. And they think the solution to the relationship is that person changing their behavior. When that's not actually the solution to the relationship. Because it is true that it always takes two to tango. So what changes in that situation is not saying you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to change and you need to stop doing that. And, you, and if that person will just do all those things and everything will be fine. No, that's, that's not going to do it. The thing that actually makes progress in a relationship is even when the one who feels offended, who feels like the other one's doing everything wrong, says, hey, I need to apologize. I need to apologize because and be humble, to be gracious. And it's that act of graciousness and humility that can actually start to turn the other person's mentality to where then they want to make those changes that need to happen. They're not going to be forced to make those changes. But it's like magnets pushing against each other. And if one can turn and turn enough and turn enough, they can pull together. doesn't always happen, okay? It's not a sure thing, but, but that, is, that is the way to do it. So that we're no longer opponents, but we're teammates again. Um, now, if you find yourself in that situation, or maybe you know someone who is, um, I, don't have, I don't have the wherewithal to give you all the solution to the problem. I do want to uh, recommend that you talk to a counselor. We've got a great one here, Dennis Welch. Um, and also, there's a really, really great book I want to recommend to you. It's called The Good Fight. It's by friends of mine, Drs. Les and Leslie Parrott. And in the book, they talk about how to argue well. Because if you're in a, if you're in a conflicting situation or relationship right now, it's not going to change overnight, most likely. It's going to be a process. It's going to be a conflict process that you have to work through. And they talk about how to fight well in the book. What's your fight style? And how to have a good fight versus a bad fight. It's a really great book. Lesson Leslie Parrott, it's called, the good, it's called The Good Fight. And I highly recommend it. And... Um, we see, I just want to kind of drive this home. After Adam and Eve, I want to close the loop on their story, but they, uh, they eat from the tree and they uh, disobey God. He comes and confronts them. They blame each other and pass it down the line. And there are consequences for that. We call that the curse. There's a, God first curses the serpent. He starts at the top with the guy who started the whole thing. And he curses the serpent. And then um, he curses Adam and he curses Eve. And uh, I think it's interesting to note the nature of these curses. So Genesis chapter 3, now verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So that's where that came from. Okay, There were no epidurals needed in Eden. But, uh, you know, when you think about that, it's more than just a physical thing, right? That's a, that's a spiritual thing. That's an emotional thing. Uh, the, the, it's that when you bring a child into the world, there is pain associated with it, and it's almost naturally then attached to that relationship. So that's, that's, it's actually relational far more than it is physical. That's easy for me to say. I'm a dude who's never had a baby. Um, but <laughs> he goes on. He says, he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That is to say that she is uh, going to be at odds with her husband, with Adam, that she is going, there's going to be conflict, that they're not going to agree, that they're going to become, what, what is it? They're going to become opponents instead of teammates. He, God calls that. It's part of that curse. And he says to Adam, 
Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So what's Adam's curse? Adam's curse is directly proportional to his purpose. His purpose is to work. And so God said, it's going to be hard. Now it's going to be hard. Now the ground's not going to bring forth what you want it to bring forth. Is it any wonder that most of us guys in the room struggle with not feeling productive or not feeling valuable or not feeling like we're accomplishing everything that we're supposed to accomplish? That's part of the curse. And whether it's the ground, whether you're a farmer and it's the ground like Adam or whether it's at a, at a business somewhere, it's the same thing. You're going to feel like you can't produce what you're supposed to produce. And so the the curses are directly related to the purposes. And if their purpose is to work and your purpose in a relationship is to be a team and to produce something together, then the curse is we're going to struggle to do that. So we're going to struggle to see eye to eye and we're not going to be as effective in doing it as we want to be. Isn't that where a lot of frustration in life comes from? I mean, I think about my relationship with Jess and, and all the time we're, we're talking, we're like, we argue, okay, that's true. Um, we argue, we try to argue well, we've learned some techniques for doing that. We argue, we disagree, and all the time we're like, the things that we're trying to build and the things we're trying to accomplish, we're always saying, I don't feel like we're making as much ground as we should be. I feel like we're lagging behind. It's not what I thought it was going to be. It hasn't come as far as I thought it was going to come. What is that? It's all the result of sin. We need to know that so that we can work through it so that we can uh, deal with it. Does that mean there's no hope? You know, if that's the curse, and it's on all of us, right? Does that mean there's no hope? No. No, this is the good news. This is the good news that we have. And, and listen, if you're not a Christian, you can, you can search for purpose in your relationship. Like you, can, you can take and say, these are the purposes for our, our marriage, and this is what we're going to work towards, and you can do that, and it will help you tremendously, I'm telling you. But this is where the rubber really meets the road. This is where we have good news that that those who don't know Jesus Christ don't have. And that's that the problem that causes all of this dysfunction, sin, that it can be remedied, that it can be removed, that our minds and our hearts can change, can elevate, can become more what God originally intended for them to be. That even though our sin Adam and Eve did it in the Garden of Eden, set a trail for the rest of us. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that God looks at us and still loves us, that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. That's good news. And he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He paid for our sin so we could be forgiven. And when we turn to Jesus Christ in faith, we can have all of that lifted off of us. We can, the shame, the regret, the grief, the fear, the, like the fear of death. We don't have to fear death. That's the best possible thing that could happen to us, quite honestly. You know, we, all of that is taken off of us. Jesus Christ dies on the cross, rises again three days later, and we can be free. And, and he sends his spirit to live in us, and he teaches us more how to be like the Adam before sin than the Adam after sin and how to be more like the Eve before sin than the Eve after sin. And, and when he puts us together in a partnership, we turn to Jesus in faith and he puts us together in a partnership. We know that he has something very specific that he wants us to do as a couple, something he wants us to accomplish, something that's going to have eternal value, not just earthly value. And so if you are married, I want to encourage you I want to encourage you to talk about what your purpose is together. 
What are we doing together? What are we building together? And that may be a lifelong thing. It may be a seasonal thing. But if it's a seasonal thing, you got to make sure you're ready for the next season. So like if right now our focus is on raising our kids, that's what we're doing. We're trying to raise them and build them up and, and help them to accept Christ. Then we need to be ready when we see that season coming to a close to get ready for the next season so that when they move out of the house and, and all of a sudden they're gone, we're not left like going, what's next? Like we need to be prepared for next what's next, be ramping up for the next season. I want to encourage you to talk about why you exist together. God doesn't put things together by accident. He doesn't put two hydrogen molecules and an oxygen molecule together by accident. He does it, what? For a purpose to create water. He didn't put you and your spouse together by accident. He puts you together for a purpose. He has something he intends for you to do. You can... And we need to find it. We need to find it. When Jesus was speaking, he said that a man should leave his father and mother. He quotes from Genesis. And uh, he says this, And they two shall become uh, one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. No longer two individuals. Now you're a new, almost a new individual together. And God has a purpose for each couple the way that he has a purpose for each individual. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Don't let those outside forces pull you apart when you have the purpose that God has given to you. I think about um, my wife, Jess. And, um, you know, we don't feel closest to each other when everything's going great or when life is the most peaceful I don't feel the closest to her when uh, I don't feel the closest to her when we're we're in the in the backyard sitting around the fire pit with the kids. It's a great time, you know. It's it's a great time as a family. That's not when I feel closest to her. I don't feel closest with her when we're on vacation and taking in a beautiful view. Although that's great, but that's not when I feel closest to her. I feel the closest to Jess when we are sitting down and we're working through difficult things and we're talking about the path that God has us on in our life. When we're strategizing our next steps as a family and how we're going to accomplish the goals that he's put in front of us. I don't know if you've experienced that. That's what I experienced. That's when I feel the most like a, like a team. That's when I feel the most like we're one rather than two. And that's because that's what God has created us for. And so if you are married, maybe, maybe you've never talked about that before. Maybe you've never considered that before. And I want to encourage you to do it. And, and it might be awkward if you've never had that, that sort of conversation, but to have it and say, what direction are we heading? What do we want to accomplish? Get on the same page. And when you do that, it starts to line up everything else in your life. It starts to line up how you spend money. It starts to line up how you spend your time. It starts to line up how you, how you arrange your schedule and work and all that. All that stuff starts to come in line when you agree on what your purpose is. And I'm so excited for you if you've never done that before to do that because it will take you to deeper levels of intimacy, connection, and effectiveness than you have ever experienced before in your relationship. All right. So I just want to pray that God would help us all to take this in, to hear it, to feel it, and to apply it. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and are so thankful for your love that um, even though we have sinned and we have failed you, uh, you never failed us. You loved us you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to earth for us, to die for us in our place, our substitute. And um, those of us that have turned in faith to you, Jesus, I, uh, we thank you. If there's anybody here who's never accepted Jesus Christ by faith, I want to encourage you to do that now. 
to admit uh, your sin and failure to God, to tell him you've sinned and fallen short of him, to recognize Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, and to place your faith and trust in that. To ask God to forgive you and know that he does. And when you do that, when you turn in faith to him, he fills you with his spirit, his Holy Spirit. And he will show you how to live. He will show you how to walk, to have purpose. Maybe it's individual purpose for you right now, what he has planned for you as a person, as a man, as a woman. He's planned for you, for your life. He'll show you that. He'll walk you through it uh, if, you, if you ask the Spirit to show you that. Maybe it's for you as a couple. Maybe you've never thought about that before. Maybe you've, you've taken an individual approach to marriage where it's not two becoming one, but two staying two and, and living together or, or two uh, staying two and following your own paths. And uh, I just want to encourage you to unify and to experience what God created marriage for, a purposeful partnership. And that won't be perfect because of sin. We have to wrestle through that. We have to work through that together. But it is a perfect, it is a pr- uh, purposeful partnership partnership. And God, for each of the couples that are here today or that are represented today, maybe one spouse isn't here with us, um, I pray that you help them find that purpose and to chase after it together so they can experience the greatest level of intimacy that you've designed for them. Uh, For people in the room that may be looking for that partner one day, I pray, God, you would start honing in their individual purpose and help them find someone who shares it so they can lean into that together. And God, all that we've talked about today, there may be something that we read in the scripture that just sank in with, with each person here that had nothing to do with anything I said. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the power of your word and the power of your spirit speaking to our hearts. And I pray that as we walk out of this church uh, meeting today, that, uh, that we would be different and that you would give us hope and a future. It's in your name we pray. Amen.